Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, the skies are turning blue, the ground is getting hard and the future's on the horizon as we face into the summer and hopefully out of the worst excesses of the pandemic. Next week, another big step forward is being made with the return of outdoor sporting activity. This will include the likes of golf and tennis and all that type of activity, but also, crucially, for parents and children all over the country, It will involve the restarting of underage, non-contact training. So what impact will the absence of organised physical activity have had on children, and indeed adults, and can everybody take up where we left off? To discuss this and a number of related issues, I'm joined by Brian Cuthbert. Brian, as you may know, served as manager of the Cork Senior Football Team, but he's also a school principal in Skullspirit Nave in Bishopstone in Cork, and a holder of a PhD in talent development in youth sport. Brian, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, William, for having me on. Brian, just to quote you, I saw a piece, and it really, I think it goes to the heart of what we were talking about that you wrote in the Examiner recently, just to quote you one tiny passage of it, you suggested, in relation to the pandemic and its effects on society, you wrote, outside of the well-being of our loved ones, sport and its absence have occupied the thoughts of many. For our young people who now live in a world of structured play, sport provides a critical social platform to experience others and develop life skills. All sport provides an opportunity for personal growth, not least learning to build tenacity and resilience. In those terms, Brian, it's been a huge void for the last year and a half, barred a few months that we were back there uh, last summer. Yeah, I think when when you look at, I suppose I look back and when you call out those words, Mick, um, you see the power of, of, of youth sport, especially in terms of what it can do for people, not only the, the participants and the youth players, but also the the bigger circus around them or the bigger uh, amount of stakeholders that surround them in terms of, you know, inputting into people's lives and, and society moving along. So I suppose in our context here in this country, um, youth sport, as the same as every other country, plays a huge part in personal development, I believe. And uh, almost by osmosis, children and youths pick up a huge amount of life skills that they can transfer into their own lives uh, such as what I mentioned there, resilience, competence, confidence, uh, you know, and many, many others. But the, the fact being that they have been denied opportunity really for the last 12 months and more, um, we really don't know where we're going to be when we get back to this. We de- really don't know the legacy that this year of COVID and lockdown is going to have on, on these these youths especially. Um, I suppose what, I, what I've seen so far in terms of return to school I've seen very young children coming back, Mick, and being, you know, just bouncing into school and, and get ready to get going again. Whereas um, I'm not quite certain is that going to be replicated uh, across the domain of youth sport. I really don't think that it's going to be a case of just rock up and let's go take off where we actually were 12 months ago and let's get going. I don't feel that's going to be the case at all. And I think, uh, and we can get into this in a while, I think uh, youth sport organisations and clubs in particular 
have a huge job of work in, in, in terms of, of finding where our takeoff position is and recalibrating and reimagining sport in such a way that we can actually get about uh, delivering those uh, life skills and those experiences that are, that are so important to youths and, as I say, the, 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 the other stakeholders, delivering all those, um, call them attributes or skills, in time is going to be a bit more difficult, I believe, than before. And you mentioned even just initially, Brian, the context of, of, of kids going back to school and you say they're bouncing in the gate. Have you noticed anything just w- without the sport, just the kids themselves, anything in that respect? Or do you expect anything in that respect that there'd be any repercussions for their development from the, the time out in the pandemic? Um, I think it's going to be very interesting, Mick. I think we won't know the answer to that until we actually get back going next week. But I, I do think... Um, with younger children, and when I'm talking about younger children, I'm talking about primary school age children, uh, their life experience, obviously, they've been on the earth a lot less longer. And, that, you know, they can bounce back into things much quicker without any repercussions. I'm not saying that every child has come back to school um, really just, just, just exactly where they were. I think a lot of children are a bit more anxious about leaving home, leaving mum and dad and, and, and coming back into school again, especially the very young children. But I think for our youths, those in secondary school, I think this is going to be very, very different. Um, and I think if, if we just think about it for a second, in terms of the lockdown, Mick, for the last two or three months, many of them, uh, what I have seen any, anyway, have have been active in terms of an unstructured approach. So if you go back to the way we were when we were younger, many of them have been cycling bikes, many of them have been out in greens, many of them have been playing with their friends much more than ever before and organising games themselves. And I'd say a lot of them have really enjoyed that. And now what we're asking to do is come back into a club structure where the adult is going to dictate exactly what's going to happen. And they're going to tell them, this is the way it's going to be. I'm the coach. I'm the manager. This is the way I want you to do it. And a lot of these coaches, I would imagine, are going to try and make up for last time and even make it more structured than it ever was before. So in a, in a kind of a strange kind of a way, in a perverse way, Mick, I think we're actually going to create problems for ourselves because these children need to return autonomously and need to be coming back into sport almost in charge of their own experiences because that's what they've done for the last three or four months and I think if we go with the stick approach of I want to get my pound of flesh here and coach this team to be ready for the championship I think we're actually going to create damage and I think we're going to actually assist uh, the level of withdrawal that's going to occur naturally anyway here because of the lockdown you know so I think we're, we're touching on a few things there but I do think uh, there's going to be a different mindset necessary here when we get back. Yeah, that's very interesting. The two things there that jump out of me, Brian. First of all, we we take it for granted, I suppose, and it's only when something like the pandemic comes along, that whole idea that today it's structured. The the whole idea of everything like that is structured. And funny you mentioned it in North, my own young fella, that idea of playing spontaneous games and setting up a game. That is something, all right, that definitely came out during the lockdown. And the other thing then being is, as you say, the adults, the coaches, they have a role here too to, uh, I don't know, step back a small bit or just allow for that bit of extra leeway maybe? Yeah, I think uh, initially anyway, I think one to, I think you, we have to talk about in the minute we talk about re-engaging our youth, right? So you have to re-engage them from the experience that they have right now. So their experience that they have right now are spontaneous rock-up games where they just go up the green and play. Uh, and now it's going to be coming back to opportunity in the club or opportunity whatever the sport is, where there's going to be structure and where there's going to be coaches. And I think we just have to be careful there. Um, I, I do think we also have to consider 
that the rock up or the walk up games are uh, of their own volition and they're you know they're in charge they make themselves right and if they want to play they play if they don't want to play they don't play so if you can imagine pre the uh, the lockdown you would have at youth level especially you have lots of children who are teetering on the brink of maybe playing or not playing or continue to play or or to withdraw because we do know in in our context in this country in Ireland in the major sports of soccer rugby and ga that between the age of 16 and 20, that's where we have our major fall off, right? Um, and unfortunately, the last study I think that was done in GA, between 16 and 21, there's about 57% of people actually withdraw from playing. So obviously, um, you know, at 14 and 15, children are thinking about whether or not they're going to continue playing. Now the lockdown has come. Now they've been given these fun opportunities and they might have enjoyed them. So they might end up, and some of the research is saying this, which is interesting, I think, they might end up going to try and find experiences that replicate what they've experienced over the last three or four months. So some of those experiences are, are kind of like, could be uh, adventure sports or, you know, uh, skateboarding in a park or, or, or where they're in charge of them, their own destiny as such. And the, and the kick that they get out of team sports, they might say, you know, I'm not really getting that anymore because I was not kind of getting it just before the lockdown. And if I go back and I'm I'm... And shuttled into behind a cone and into a drill or into, you know, these games, they, they, they could end up saying, hang on a second, this isn't for me at all, I'm gone, you know. And I think we have to be very, very cautious there and very, very conscious of, of what's happening. And I suppose the second point in that too, Mick, is that we also have to really, really consider um, the emotional uh, effect of the lockdown, especially the first part of the lockdown. I think children had a bit more freedom these last three or four months. But in the earlier part of March, April and May last year, and I know they got back to playing sport a bit, but they certainly were locked up at home. And I think uh, the emotional, call it damage done there, the sense of isolation, the sense of, you know, there's nothing really to do here except sit on the couch, eat and watch television or play play video games. I think some children uh, got very comfortable doing that. And I think we have to be very, very careful about how we're going to try and re-engage them to um, because it's vital, it is vital that we try and get all, as many children as we can, back into playing structured sport. Yeah, and as you say, you have the short term thing there, Brian, as in there could be the possibility of a spike in that fall off. And you mentioned 16 to 20. As I understand it, no one you could correct me, mm. is there also a spike at an earlier age of about 12, 12 to 13, when they go from uh, primary school into secondary school, a, a fall off there as well? You have that in the short term. Yeah. And then in the in the longer term, it's a question of um, whether they, they, they'll hang in playing there at all. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose all of all of the organisations are very cognizant of the fact that, you know, withdrawal from youth sport is a major, major issue in this country. Um, and I think, you know, being parochial, the GA for the last two or three years have, have, have been working really, really hard and trying to design a new player pathway with that, with retention of players as a central component. We won't get into that today, but that that's that that's something that that's good news for everybody. But you're right, Mick. That transition, that even the player pathway uh, that the GA have designed, it's it's designed around Venn diagrams where transition points are the intersection of the circles. So the transition point at primary school, there's work needed there between primary school and secondary school to keep children playing. The transition out of minor or under eighteen, that time that into adult sport, that's another key transition. And there's huge work needed there in terms of keeping people playing. But those transitions were always there. The lockdown now is an added effect. So we, 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 have, we have had the experiences that we've had over the last 12 months. 
Um, some children are very, very, very ready uh, to go back to, to train. Some children can't wait to get back to the club next Monday and, and play. There are other children, I would absolutely imagine, that are saying, you know, I don't think I'm going to do it. Maybe I might try it out for a week or two, but, uh, you know, it's not really for me. I've enjoyed what I've had here for the last three or four months. I'm going to have a different experience in terms of structured sport isn't for me. And I think really, really, we won't see it until it actually happens. But the research across the world in terms of countries that have are, are, are a bit ahead of us in terms of re- re-entering sport has seen huge spike in numbers at primary children's age, huge spike in numbers at adult level in, in structured sport, but an alarming fall off at youth level in sports uh, in, in, in particular countries. And I think we're probably, not being negative about it, but I think we are probably, if we're not careful, we're probably in danger of, of, of mirroring some of those statistics, I would think. And why particularly in this country would we be in that danger, Brian? I, th- I think context is key. I think, Mick, to be honest with you, um, I think the experiences in sport are, are, are probably around three sports only here, um, soccer, rugby and GA. Outside of those, obviously there are other sports, but uh, the, the amount of access people have to them is quite limited in comparison to, say, other countries where the research was done, such as Australia, um, New Zealand, and other different approaches happening there in terms of, I, I don't know if you read about it, but Balance is Better is called, where they're completely reconceptualizing youth sport and, and involving maybe six to seven major NGBs. I suppose here, Mick, in this country, I would say that three NGBs dominate the whole environment. And uh, I would also say that within within that kind of domination, there's a certain culture around how those sports should be delivered. And I think that culture in certain instances causes problems in terms of retention, because ultimately within those sports, in many, many cases, it's about completely about uh, finding very, very good players and pushing them through a pyramid of of progression into a, a, a top team. Or it's about coaches, particularly wanting their teams to win underage competitions. And I think that kind of culture, certainly in my opinion anyway, dominates the environment here. And I think with that being the case, and you may say it dominates other environments across the world as well, but because unfortunately the professionalisation of, of sport in general, which we saw even this week with this European Super League, if you take that down and drill it all the way down to youth level, it's all about uh, you know strong getting stronger, the rich getting richer and, and youth sport uh, mirroring what's happening at the top level. For example, Mick, all these practices that you see in professional sports, such as strength and conditioning, nutrition, hydration, all that, all of that stuff has seeped down to under 12, under 13 club level stuff. And I think because in this country, the domination of these three sports, I, I, I actually believe culture is an issue here and we need to challenge it. We really need to challenge what's been delivered and, and how it's been delivered. Um, and I, I think what we have done over the last 15 to 20 years ha- will open us to, to, and this may sound controversial now, but I don't mean it to be, but will open us to the possibility of maintaining that level of withdrawal that we spoke about earlier on between 16 and 20 in, in, in the major competitions or the major sports. Yeah, and it's definitely the case. The thing that the other thing that just strikes me there, Brian, as you mentioned, and, and you referenced this in the piece you mentioned, examiners, the whole idea of structured sport and Coming at it slightly different way, the, the the eighteen months or so, you know, barred the time back briefly, a lot of kids 
it'll be their first introduction to unstructured sport, unlike going back 20, 30, 40 years ago, when to some extent that was the dominant thing. And even when, when kids were playing within clubs, you know what I mean? It wasn't anywhere near the, the kind of organisation there was at the moment. And you just wonder, w- would that exercise as a pull on them because of of the novelty factor and, and, and therefore turn them off going back to the structured environment? Yeah, I think if if you just go back to 20 or 30 years ago, Mick, you know, you had larger families, you had people playing on greens or on fields or on roads. Television had a huge, not saying it doesn't know, but had a huge influence on what was going to be played. So, you know, you've probably heard this before loads of times and the listeners will have heard it loads of times, but the fact of, uh, you know, if there was golf on television, like the British Masters, British Open, people were going making golf greens out in fields and trying to play. You know, it got so bad. It got so bad, you know, Wimbledon closed the gates and you were Jimmy Connors or whoever it was. Um, when the RDS was on, does nobody can deny in, in the 80s that you pretended that you were Eddie Mackin on Rainbow Warrior, you were hopping over fences, you know, that you made with milk crates. Um, so all the time we were developing our sense of, of play with our gross motor skills, right? Then, because we were playing with larger families and, and neighbours, we just developed this understanding of how to play games before we ever got to the club. When that was happening, that... Um, people are going to clubs with limited understanding of how games function. So everything is structured. Everything is structured. Even getting to the club is structured. Mom or dad is driving you before you walked, your friends are cycled. So absolutely everything is structured. So if the child's experience is just completely around structured play, uh, structured sport, and suddenly that's taken away when the lockdown comes and they're too small to experience unstructured sport, in other words, they're too small to go out and on the green with their friends, right? What ultimately happens is there's a complete absence of sport in their lives for the bones of 12 months. Now, the question, and if I'm reading you correctly, the question is, where are we going to catch this up? You know what I mean? Yeah. Where are we going to catch this up? Where are we going to actually say, there's 12 months gone now, the child now is under 11, uh, where, and, and my worry is that coaches are just going to pour time and energy into increased activity. But I don't think it's increased activity we need. I actually think it's smarter activity we need to actually engage these children and engage their parents. I think this is very, very important as well. Um, because my, 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 I suppose what I'm trying to articulate is my fear is that we come back here and we just try and pour more water into the bucket. like, And it's not, that's not how player development works at all. Um, and, and it's a big fear. And I think, you know, NGBs are going to have to be very clear on how they communicate what way this should work. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. It's very interesting, actually. The other thing, the other feature of the lockdown, um, Brian, was the um, the use of Zoom. Now, I was talking to somebody today who, who coaches a, an underage girls team and he made the point that he found it was very mixed success in that the, the, those who were better were comfortable enough using it and those who weren't just, they shied away from the whole thing. How do you think that whole Zoom effort went during the lockdown and, and whether it was a bonus? Um, I think clubs were doing their very best to keep people engaged. And I, I would actually applaud the efforts I saw in, in my own club where managers and coaches tried to try to make sure that children were remaining engaged. I, my experience was over the last, certainly over the last two or three months, there was Zoom fatigue where, um, you know, 50% of people in groups make weren't engaging by 
by the last, certainly after two months of Zoom meetings, they were gone. And it was almost like we'll park it up and we'll get back to you when uh, the physical activity resumes outside and we can go back to the club. Um, I think the efforts were very valiant, but I, I, I think um, really, 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 if, if you look to be in the cold light of day, it was purely a connection effort, all right? Because the work that was being done was done on kitchen floors and the laptop looking at. And you have the other issue then of coaches doing their very best to deliver messages over the Zoom platform. But it really does need it with younger children in particular, an adult to know what the coach was talking about so that the message was delivered properly. In other words, this is how you do a squat. This is how you do press-ups. This is how you do burpees. This is uh, best intentions in the world. You cannot, it's very difficult to teach over the, the digital platform. So I suppose everybody made huge efforts, but certainly I think there was fatigue in the last two months. But at the same time, did we have any choice? Did we have any choice but try to remain connected, try to deliver something that uh, people still felt part of a group or a team? Um, but I think it also brought, it also probably hammered home the level in, in certain circumstances, disadvantage that some children are exposed in terms of number one, access to digital technology. Number two, access to a parent who was familiar with sport or familiar, familiar with training. And I suppose take uh, an added part of that would be make the fact that those children who were in homes where parents wanted to go out with them kicking around or pucking around or running or exercising, they've had a, a six-month advantage over children who were in homes where parents were busy with work, uh, you know, were, were doing their best to make ends meet, or couldn't, couldn't in, in any shape or form, you know, even understand the sport that the child plays to actually help him or her develop skills over the last six months. So you're going to see all these inequalities come to play when people get back to clubs in a couple of weeks, you know, next week. They're they're really going to come home to roost. Uh, and it's a bit like you're coming back to school where you'd see the, the child whose parents were, had the ability and the time to spend hours a day working with a child and then children whose parents were extremely under pressure themselves, who may not have that same time. Absolutely. I've seen you write elsewhere, Brian, about the magic moments that are necessary in the youth's sporting life and that much of this naturally comes from competition. And that's another element, isn't it? It's going to be a while still before we're able to get back into competition and there are certain challenges in the whole area of non-contact training. It's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very difficult for people because, Mick, even going back now to the fact that it's non-contact training, and that's what the guidelines are saying, yet they're out in the green playing, taking lumps out of each other, playing sport every single day. Uh, in schoolyards, I'd say all over the country, they're playing sport. But this, this is just the hand that we're being dealt, which is fair enough. I think at the moment, people will bite your hand off just to get back to the club and, and accept that it's non-contact. But in the absence of competition, uh, we do have a difficulty in trying to actually keep people motivated engage them and there's only a certain window that they can keep going for in terms of a non-contact training regime that uh, is structured if we go back to the very early part of this conversation so i think hopefully hopefully the government will come in four or five weeks time and say youths and children are allowed to play matches because matches are extremely important but i think what the lockdown also has given us an opportunity to is reimagine competition, Mick, so these magic moments can happen more often. So we, we've deemed that sport is not essential, which is fair enough in terms of our overall health, right? Our overall living, 
when the pandemic was on, sport was deemed to be not essential, which is fine. But we also deemed that without sport, life is in a different place. And without sport for children and youths, life is in a different place as well. So we're now gone back to it. But the question I'd ask is, are we going to go back to sport and deliver what we've always delivered? Are we going to go back to sport and say, you know, this is the box it belongs to. It's about personal growth. It's about development. It's about developing attributes and values within people. Are are we going back to the competition element where we're saying we're going back to this and we're going to win the failure this year or we're going to win the under 14 competition or we're going to, you know, I'm going to do my very best to train these fellas into the ground to be ready so we win something and it reflects well on me. So I think, I hope that the lockdown has given us all an opportunity to reimagine it, reimagine sport in a way where all those things we spoke about there two minutes ago, the attributes, the values, um, the life skills, that they become the priority. And getting and, and getting them right so that we can utilize competition as a developmental tool until we get to 18 or 19, where we're going to say it's now about, you know, the club being very successful trying to win competitions. And I, I would hope that lots of people have had an opportunity to reflect and actually say there's a way a different way forward here. And in that context, you're talking about coaches and parents will need a certain change of mindset in order to convey that. Yeah, and I, I think NGBs as well, Mick, because it's, it's vital that, um, it is absolutely vital that going forward that NGBs do do work. R- remind us again, NGB, the acronym. Governing bodies, so the FAI, the IRFU, the GA, that, that there's going to be work done with parents in terms of educating them what, what, it, what, it, what it is they're after, what it is the, the company, you know, they, the, what, what it is the whole association are after in terms of what it is we're trying to develop. And I think there's education pieces there for parents and that spin home from the match and the language used in the car in terms of what it is we're after is absolutely crucial. And then you have the coaching piece where, again, there's huge, huge requirement and, and need for, I would say, a different type of education where coaches are, are, are maybe exposed to this reimagining sport, what that could look like. And again, wearing my GA hat, that's that's somewhere where the GA, as far as I can see, want to go. I would also say I would say most sports in this country want to go there too. But sometimes we have dif- difficulty due to the such such an influence on culture. And I, if you go back to that question you asked me around, Mick, about why in this country, why in this context? Don't forget the country is whatever hundred year, hundred years old or whatever. You know, in that in that our sense of place is the one of the things that's most important to Irish people, right? And the sense of rivalry between local places, particularly in Gaelic games, is absolutely massive. So within that comes a culture of wanting to get one over on our neighbours and wanting to protect where we come from. And I think there's a sense within us, in this country in particular, where this parish-based rivalry is what sustains us in a way, and ultimately winning is a huge part of that. So when you talk about player development and, and values and attributes and developing those through sport, Sometimes, because of the power of our culture, that gets clouded and we can't see the wood from the trees. And ultimately, when we put ourselves on the sideline, me included, when we put ourselves on the sideline, this, this, this culture takes over in terms of wanting so badly to beat our neighbours, to win, to be the pride of our parish. It, it just overcomes us. That's not, that's not present in sport in other contexts. It's not present. It doesn't happen in sport in other places. It, it's about competition in the teams but this is something bigger and I think um, 
for us, there's a huge education piece in terms of managing that culture better and managing the stakeholders within the culture, i.e. the coaches and the parents. Yeah, I would quickly know, I, I may be wrong in this point, but I have a recollection that a number of years ago in terms of in, in England looking at soccer and they, they wanted to develop like the Europeans, particularly the Dutch and Germans, I think. And what they noticed was exactly what you're talking about, this idea of the importance or, or the importance that is wrongly placed on winning it underage as opposed to developing Mm. And they tried to try to adapt because they saw that those in Europe were so much ahead of them in that respect. So there could be a, a touch of it in Britain as well as here, that type of thing, you know. It's, I'd say so. But I, I think probably if you look at in terms of Britain, in terms of the sports and particularly soccer, it's all about driving towards a professional contract and the next contract yeah. and moving forward. And in that guise, um, I, I think... The, the the judgment on where we're at comes where where does the England under seventeen team come in the World Cup? Where does the England under nineteen team come? And what they do then in in, in, in particularly in soccer is they borrow models from other countries. So at the moment, as far as I can see, the Belgium the Belgium model is is, is the, the gold standard because they've come from nowhere and become number two, three, or one in the world in terms of rankings. And everybody's watching what they did, but. There, there, there are subtleties to what happened that only could work in Belgium. And what happens is people try to borrow them and then put them into, you know, London or Liverpool or, you know, Cork. And it doesn't work. Um, so that's where context is key in terms of this player development. It's, it's absolutely, player development can only take place within the context that it's happening in. And you have to fit into the context rather than trying to fit an external context into yours. And I think, you know, the, the organisations that run sport in this country have to be very, very clear on, you know, an Irish way of doing things. And yes, you can borrow best practice from the world of sport, but it has to fit in terms of what we do here and it has to fit in terms of the impact that our society has on how sports operate. And it has to fit, for example, the influence of the GA in terms of, of opportunity for other sports in this country must be huge. Could you imagine what the Irish rugby team would be like if they had all the GA players, what the Irish soccer team would be like if they had all the GA players. If the, you know, and I, I'm not being parochial, but it's just a matter of fact in this country that there's a national sport that's amateur that's taking an awful lot of the very fine athletes. Um, so I think that's that's an issue that that we seem to forget. But the influence of culture is absolutely powerful, Mick. And I, I think again, organisations need to look at that. One other thing um, in 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 that respect. Is there a direct correlation between the overall number of particip- of numbers participating, particularly at youth level, and the, the 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 number of elite players that emerge from it? And I'm wondering in particular, like for instance, I'm looking at rugby and the success that the Irish rugby team have had in the recent decade or so. And I don't know, have the numbers in rugby at youth level increased that much? And then you also have the phenomenon now because it's gone professional of rugby and so-called social rugby, which I think is a fascinating term. But is there that direct correlation there in terms of uh, team sports in general? Yeah, it's a simple mathematical equation in my head. The more people who play the sport, the better chance you have of having more elite players in the end. But it also comes down to structures and systems. And I think what's happened in our country is the, and, I, and I'm only looking from the outside in, 
is that the structures within uh, academies and senior schools, particularly in Leinster, have driven standards through the roof. So much so, uh, God be good to him, the, uh, uh, Gareth Fitzgerald, the former CEO of Munster, um, I, I met him one day because he was from Bishopstone and I was chatting to him and he said that to him that uh, the standard of player coming out of school in Leinster was probably three years into an academy player maybe five years ago. In other words, the, a fast forward button had been pressed on them in school and they were producing players out of school that five years previous were three years into an academy contract at age 21. So they'd gained three years somewhere due to training all right, and volume of training. So you have this huge system churning out an awful lot of players now, as I say, particularly in Leinster, maybe in Ulster and, and Munster as well, to be fair. And the more of those players that are churned out, the obviously the more you can actually produce and push on to your Irish senior team. But I suppose at a league level, Mick, uh, and I borrow this from somewhere else, it's like smashing eggs, throwing eggs off a wall, and you pick up the ones that don't break, and they're the guys who, who move forward. All the ones that get smashed along the way, Nobody ever seems to care about them, and they're just they're just hoovered up and cleaned up and moved on. And I think in reimagining sport, yes, elite sport has to happen, and it's a huge, huge, huge plus for us, and has been a, certainly a massive plus to watch it over the last twelve months. Without it, we were lost. But we have to continuously think of the ninety nine percent of people who are who are playing sport, you know, at, at at recreational or social or even club level at, to the highest level they possibly can. I couldn't let you go without asking you, Brian, what you think of the forthcoming Senior All-Ireland Championship knockout in the summer. We'd knock out in the winter last year. Last year, is it something you're looking forward to? Or would you would you prefer if there was space enough to get back to the the, the system we had up to now? No, I, I actually, I suppose somebody who was reared on watching Kerry v. Cork every year, Mick, um, in, in the late 70s and early 80s, I, I think they're, you know, and Cork getting you know, getting one over in Kerry last year, I think knockout brings its own uh, excitement. And I, I do understand completely the need at the moment for a condensed inter-county season to allow the club season to obviously operate. Um, I think, you know, even the draws yesterday, the day before, there's opportunity there for everybody, well, most teams, to, to have a crack off somebody on a one-off day. Now, if, if Cork managed to beat Limerick and Kerry come through on the other side, um, or Limerick or Watford, I think Cork, Cork are playing, and then it's down to Clarny for Munster final. Um, you know, and I think Kerry are going to be waiting there big time for after what happened last year. But <laughs> I think I think uh I think it's exciting in one way. Uh, I think in another way it's a bit mundane with the, the, the actual monopoly the dubs have on the championship at the moment. But to give 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 people a one off opportunity, you win, you move forward, you lose, you're gone, and players can return back to their club and prepare for club championship. I think that that for now. I think that's the best model we possibly can have going forward. Hopefully, we'll have something different than we've had in the past. Uh, and I think the GA is probably ready for change there too. I suppose, Brian, in terms of Cork and Kerry, it's really a scientific question as to whether lightning can strike twice. <laughs> <laughs> no comment there. Brian, Mick, I won't Brian, Brian Cuthbert, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for that, Brian. No bother, Mick. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to get your digital subscription to the Irish Examiner. See you soon, folks. Informative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. 
feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.